Today's reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 6. It's on page 276 of your church Bible. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory for seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark to the God of, of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, Five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers. Because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country, and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When Israel's God is dealt harshly with, when Israel's God dealt harshly with them, they did not send, send the Israelites out so that they could go on their way. Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart. And in a chest beside it, put the gold objects that you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory towards Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we shall know that it was not by his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart, and along with it, the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumours. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were, were harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord, together with the chest containing the gold objects, and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of, Philistine, of the Philistines saw this and then returned that same day to Ekron. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord, one each for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them 
And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. Thanks, Matthew, for reading that to us. Now, uh, the children are going to go off behind the screen. They're going to study uh, 1 Samuel chapter 6. We need to study 1 Samuel chapter 6 up here. So, if accidentally you've shut the Bible, it's on page 276. And we're going to be looking at that really closely. If, at the end of it, you've got any questions, ah, we're nice and friendly here, you can ask. You can say whatever you like, actually, because we're still nice and friendly. And if, at the end of our little session, uh, we want to have a little bit of a discussion, hey, evening's ours, we can do with it what we like. All right? So, here's the first question as we come in. Uh, What do you think about God and... What do you think of the idea of being frightened by God? That's a question that comes out of this passage, isn't it? He's just killed 75,000 people, his people, in this town called Beth Shemesh. Ah. He's frightening. But I thought the God of the Bible, we were supposed to love him, aren't we? So here's the big question. Can you be frightened and love the same person at the same time? Now, there's a lot of the Bible that seems to be telling us that God's scary. If you were here last week when we did 1 Samuel chapter 5, if you were here the previous week when we did 1 Samuel chapter 4, 1 Samuel chapter 4 to 1 Samuel chapter 6, there's an awful lot of people who die. But doesn't that make it difficult to love God when he kills people? It's a uniquely Christian problem. All the other religions of the world, uh, mainly they trade on fearing God and being frightened of him, full stop. So, for example, in in Islam, uh, in the Quran, in chapter 4, verse 56, um, uh, let me uh, go and say, uh, this is what it says, uh, we shall soon cast into fire all those who deny our messages. And as often as their skins are burnt up, we will replace them with other new skins that they may continually taste the agony of punishment. Surely Allah is almighty, all-wise. There you are. That's Islam for you. One of the things we do when we go around our estate is we ask Muslims we meet, so what is it about God that you love? So far, not one person has asked that question. But the Quran will tell you why. It's because in the Quran, God never expects their God, never expects anybody to love them. But you pick up the Bible, and the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And yet the Bible also tells us that it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. So wise people 
we learn to fear him. But any Bible reader, we want to learn to love him. So, Christians have those two things to think through. And what should we therefore do? How can you do both? Maybe we just need to love God when we get to the bits of the Bible where you love him and maybe fear God in the bits of the Bible when we read them to fear him. It's a bit like hopping on one foot at a time. Uh, When you're fearing him, you're fearing him. When you're loving him, you're loving him. And the Bible actually says, no, you make progress as a Christian with both feet working together. In fact, the truth is, the more we fear God the more we'll love him. And the more we love him, the more we'll fear him. We'll see that tonight as we look at uh, 1 uh, Samuel chapter 6. It's a passage that helps us do both. And there are two things to remember. Uh, If you look at what happened to the Philistines and if you look at what happened to the Israelites. And we're going to look at them with two little headings. One is that God destroys and then he heals. And the second heading is he heals and then he destroys. Okay, It just helps us to keep the love and the fear uh, together all the time. Not go from one little heading to to the next. Now, the Philistines, let's go first to the fact that God destroys and he heals. Now look, the Philistines have had enough of being destroyed in chapter 5. If you were here last week, if you weren't, the tape is on our website. Have a listen. The fact is that the, Israel, uh, the, the Philistines now want to be healed. If you look at chapter 6 and verse 3, which in context means they don't want to be destroyed anymore. Uh, don't send the ark back without a gift. By all means, send the guilt offering. Then you will be healed. Okay, that's what we want. And so, very interestingly, they t- ask their priests to tell them how. Now, that's fascinating because you'd expect them to ask their generals to tell them how. How do we take this ark back to Israel without starting another war? When these, those guys see the color of our uniforms... They'll think that we're attacking them again rather than trying to do them a good turn. How do we solve that one, generals? But no, they don't go to the generals because frankly, they're not bothered that much about the Israelites. But it's God that they don't want to provoke anymore. And they want their priests to keep them safe from him. And the priests know what to do because they know what happened in Egypt. Do you know what happened in Egypt? I'm going to tell you what happened in Egypt. What happened in Egypt was that God's people were slaves and God wanted them out, but the Egyptians tried to keep them fenced in. And that's when they got into trouble and got destroyed. At the end of verse 6, it tells you that. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did when Israel's God dealt harshly with them Did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? 
and said that's what happened. Uh, the Philistines wanted healing and they didn't want what they learned from Egypt. And in Egypt, they were sent away. Incidentally, the same word that is used of Pharaoh sending them away in Exodus chapter 13 verse 17 is the Philistines now wanting them to send them away. Okay, makes the point that we're going back to those uh, times in Egypt. In fact, when they sent the, the uh, is, Israelites away, uh, they weren't to send them away empty-handed. They were to send them away with gold and silver. That's in Exodus chapter 11, verse 2, if you want to check. Now here, there's no silver. It's just all gold. They're sending them away with uh, gold the gold replicas of rats and tumours that are associated with the plague that they had in chapter 5. Now, we saw last week that uh, people might have concluded, or could conclude probably wisely, that the Philistines were struck down by some form of bubonic plague, which nearly wiped out London. It's that serious, and it's spread by rats, and the Symptoms are tumours. So maybe that's what they had, and that's why they've got tumours and rats in gold uh, to uh, point to the fact that they got it wrong. And that's the point that these gifts primarily want to make, that these Philistines got God badly wrong. That is why in verse 3, they are called a guilt offering. They are being punished for their guilt. Now the link up with Egypt makes the same point. In verse 6, God's, uh, Israel's God dealt harshly with them because they didn't send the Israelites away. And so therefore, you get the point, don't you? God does not randomly destroy people. They bring it on themselves. And so therefore these priests tell their rulers, look, God only destroys people who harden their hearts and try and take him on. So please don't do that. They know that God doesn't just simply kill people and burn their skins left, right and center. It's only when you provoke him. But the priests want to make sure that they've got it right. And so they come up with this little test to see if it was God making everything happen in their country or was it just a fluke? Was it just bad luck that they had this horrible plague? And so what they do is they come up with this test in verse 9. They put the ark onto a new cart which therefore hasn't had any other previous use associated with it. But here's the thing. They stack the odds against that ark going anywhere near Israel by taking two cows who haven't been trained. They've never pulled in a cart before, so they don't know what to do with the thing when they're harnessed to it. But even more, they expect these cows to do what no cows in their right maternal minds would do which is to walk away from their babies. And yet, 
they say to themselves, if after stacking the odds up against this happening so much, the ark is still taken to Israel, then they'll know that the whole thing has got God's signature written all over it. And in verse 12, they get their answer. It's as if returning the ark was the one thing these cows wanted to do. Now, Beit Shemesh was the nearest Israelite city. It's about seven miles away. That's not a problem for these cows. They go straight there. They are cows on a mission. They turn neither to the right nor to the left, and they're lowing all the way. This is God making that happen. So what did the God, what did, sorry, the Philistines learn about God at the end of the seven months that the ark was with them? But they certainly would have learned that God destroys. In fact, actually, in verse 9, it tells us that is what the test proves. In verse 9, it says, uh, uh, it is the Lord that has brought this great disaster on us. So yes, they learned that God destroys. But that experiment also shows, in the words of verse 3, that God heals, that he stops destroying. Just because they were able to study what had happened in Egypt, they were able to uh, take safety measures for themselves. So not one Philistine dies in chapter 6. In that sense, they are healed. And now they know that God only destroys if you harden your hearts and you provoke him, which is what they did in chapter 5. God destroys then. But he also heals because he's told you how to avoid that destruction. But the second point is much shorter. He heals and then he destroys. When the people of Beit Shemesh, and remember they are the people of Israel, they are God's people, when they saw the ark coming home in verse 13, they loved it. Now here's the point. Remember this very carefully. Beit Shemesh wasn't just the nearest city. Beit Shemesh was also what they call a Levitical city. Now, to you and me, that simply means that these guys are ark specialists. Okay? Uh, they're certified as a, 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 a Levitical city, uh, Beit Shemesh is, in Joshua chapter 21, verse 16. So these guys know the significance of the ark. They know how important it is. They know that their country has been sick without the ark. Remember when they lost it at the end of chapter 4? They said the glory of God has departed because we've lost the ark. They were bereft. They were miserable. But now the ark has come home and the nation is going to feel better again. And verse 18 would have been a great place to stop the reading. Because everybody is happy and living forever after and uh, <clears throat> let's put the kettle on and let's not read anymore. But we did say we're going to read chapter 6 tonight so we have to finish it off and read what happens next. Yeah, he heals but then 
he destroys. Because now what happens in verse 19 is that the Israelites suffer casualties. Clearly they step over the boundary when some of them peer into the ark and 70 of them die, which is a big number for a very small town. Now remember what I said before, Beit Shemesh was a Levitical city. If you look at verse 15, you will see that there are Levites around who know how to treat the ark. But isn't it a dangerous thing when privilege leads people to think that their safety is guaranteed? You die when you do that. And 70 did. And so the rejoicing in verse 13 turns to mourning in verse 19 because God who healed by coming home destroys those who are ultimately as dishonoring to him as the Philistines were. So let's bring all this together and think for ourselves a bit more about this idea of loving God and fearing him as well because of what happened in this chapter. What does that mean? Well, if you're new to church, maybe that um, you've got that question in your minds. Look, is there really such a thing as a God? And does he really make a difference to what happens to me? And how I live? Now I'm hoping you learned the big lesson from the Bible tonight is that God is very real. And he is incredibly active. On both sides, amongst those who are not his people as well as those who are his people. In other words, you can't contain him. But if you're new, you might uh, want to... uh, Uh, see in this bit of the Bible that in a sense the Philistines wanted to know the same thing. Did God make things happen for us in the way that they did or was it just a chance? Well, their little test in verse 9 showed that this was all God. And the Israelites learnt the same lesson as well. That God was absolutely real and things were happening in his presence. If you look at verse 20, you'll see that that is actually what the cry is. They say, um, the people of Beit Shemesh ask, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Oh, they knew that God was present. And we need to pick that up too. Not in a kind of armchair, oh that's interesting okay, I'll I'll take it that God is alive in a kind of academic yes, okay that's fair enough kind of way we can't ever do that with God because we need to understand that if this God is real then we can't just simply treat him sitting in an armchair we need to understand that if this God is real then we need to respond to him in a way that reveals our understanding of his greatness. Because if we step over the line with this God, then he destroys people who do that. And we need to learn that lesson. Not just that he's real, 
but that he is a God who will strike and act on those who don't live with that reality in the way that we should. But equally, if we are clued up about uh, Christianity, if we've been to church pretty much all our lives, you've spotted the danger for us, haven't you? And that is that we can be like the Levites and feel that the privileges we've had kind of guarantee our safety. Oh, God loves us. He's never going to deal with us like he did with those non-Christian Philistines. Really? Let me tell you, there are 70 graves in Beit Shemesh that suggest that we change our minds about that. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote more about God's love and filled so many letters in the New Testament telling us about God's love, also wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which is worth a look. It's on page 1151. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, I'm going to just uh, rapid read through the first few verses. For I, this is Paul talking. I don't, the Apostle Paul, he's written so much about God's love. Okay, keep that in mind. I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea by going back to Egypt again, okay? They were all baptized to Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. So in other words, they had masses of privileges. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now look, here's the important thing. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts. We're New Testament people, this side of the cross, and they're written to keep us from setting our hearts on evil, as they did. In other words, we're no different. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry, we should not commit sexual adultery, uh, immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes, and do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angels. Brothers, look at verse 11 closely. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Now, what happened in Beit Shemesh is written as a warning for Beckentry Church. And warnings are frightening, but they keep us safe. Isn't it a good thing to have a fear of heights? You look down, you see the drop, and you keep well away from the edge. It's just as good to be fearful of God, to look at his word, and to keep well away from the edge and crossing that line. 
a great fear to learn, to develop, if it stops us taking risks. What happens if you're someone who really wants to grow both love and fear and you don't want to lose sight of one or the other? You want to keep looking at both at the same time. Can you really grow one and grow the other rather than shrink the other? Let me tell you something. I think the proof that you are growing one is that you will also be growing the other. Because think of the cross. See, on the cross, Jesus died as a massive signpost to God's love for sinners. Why God would even destroy his one and only son to stop anybody going through his judgment. It's a very different God from the God of Allah who likes to skin people and give them new skins to get burnt all over again. Here's a, here's a God who doesn't want a single person to experience his judgment who would even give up the life of his son to stop that happening. Now, loving God is very easy when you realize you are loved by God like this. You adore him when you have a God who loves like this. But isn't it equally true that when you look on the cross, you don't just see God's love, but you also see God's anger at the one on whom sin has stuck. When you look at the cross, you see God's anger even at his son when sin clings to him. Do you think it's going to be any different like that with you? If sin stares around you? Do you think he's going to let you off more lightly than he let off his son? Seriously? Now the more time goes on, if you're a Christian, the more you realize how our hearts are constantly wavered and how incredible it is that God should love even a heart like ours. But isn't it equally true that the more precious you understand God's love is, the more scared you are of losing it. And the two can go together. So David, when he had sinned against Bathsheba and against Uriah, her husband, by having him killed, he speaks greatly about God's love. and He turns to God and he still asks God to forgive him. In other words, he knows that it's not the end of the show. It's not the end of the road. But at the same time, he does want to earnestly pray, but Lord, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Because he knows that God has every right to and could. So he pleads that it wouldn't happen. So we need to fear God rather than take him lightly. As much as we appreciate his love, even more as that love grows. Do we want to hate losing that love? 
And if you think about it, it is that mixture of love and fear that will be our experience in heaven. It's very interesting that uh, John, the Apostle John, is regarded in John's Gospel as the disciple who Jesus loved. That's how he's called. He is, if you like, Jesus' favorite disciple. Do you know what it was like when this favorite disciple was reunited with his friend in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17? John tells us, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, Jesus tells him in that case not fear the condemnation of that because Jesus loves him so much. But at the same time, John in Revelation chapter 1 verse 16 has seen that Jesus is one with the seven stars in his, in other words, he has the fate of everyone in his hands and he, his, his speech is like a sword. That's how... Uh, powerful it is to the point of taking life uh, and exercising judgment oh he is that kind of Jesus so whilst loving him for all that uh, the Lord Jesus has done for him through his death and resurrection wouldn't he be wanting to treat the Lord Jesus with great awe and with great reverence as well that's what we need to grow. A sense of doing both as we anticipate living with him in heaven. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, the ark comes back to Israel. In the Lord Jesus, God comes back to us. In that new relationship with him, we need to love him dearly, deeply that he would come back. But we need to fear him too. Because Beth Shemesh is there as an example to us. And it's an example because it's to spare us. And we'll be spared if we grow fear and live in safety. Let's pray that God will help us to do that. And then we'll take questions and uh, talk more. Father in heaven, thank you for putting in front of us things that have happened in the past so we can live wisely in the future. Give us a growing love for you and a growing fear of you. Out of the growing awareness of the kind of God that you are, very, very merciful and yet very, very majestic as we anticipate living with a God like this in heaven. Even our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.